Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trosetto, working for Somerset CCG, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health and Dementia. And today our title is Living Well with Cancer. And to help us, we've got Joe Morrison from Somerset, who's going to help us on living well with cancer, certain aspects of it. Now, welcome, Joe. Very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Andrew. And Joe, are you Dr. Morrison or are you Miss Morrison? Excuse me asking. And how could it be both? Uh, well, it's very complicated in the UK. So traditionally, um, uh, the doctors were the clever physicians who trained in universities and the surgeons came from the barber surgeons. So hence why once you get your surgical qualifications, you become a mister or now misc and they actually let girls in now. Um, but um so I was originally a doctor and then I became a miss and then I'm a doctor again because I'm a PhD doctor as well. So both sorts. Right. So very highly qualified. And your special... Normally just respond to Joe, to be honest. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So very highly qualified. And there's that interesting history about the sort of the, the, the history of medicine and how Mr. or Miss can actually be more, more qualified than just doctor. So that's interesting. And what's, what area is your specific specialty? So I'm a gynae-oncology surgeon, um, which means that I uh, just look after um, people who have gynecological cancers. So that includes um, ovarian, endometrial, vulval, vaginal and cervical cancer. Um, so we train as uh, obstetricians and gynecologists, so do all of the training for that. And then at the end of that, we do higher subspecialist training. So um, I did another seven years on the end because I was also a clinical lecturer running a research group. So um, it, it's quite a prolonged thing and you eventually get to the end of that um, and, and, and are allowed to be a consultant. And Joe, I, I know all cancers are difficult to, to deal with and to live with, but gynae cancers seem to be particularly difficult for people because it kind of strikes us who at who you are, doesn't it? Do you do you find this? I yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, I guess we are where we were with breast cancer. You know, when I was growing up, and it was very much taboo subject, and nobody spoke about it. And yet now, women walk around London with their bras on and raise money for it. But with with gynecological cancer. Um, it, it's very intimate. You don't want to show people some of the problems. Um, often don't people don't talk about it with their nearest and dearest, so people don't prompt them to go and see their GPs. Um, and also, you know, many of the treatments that we have remove people's chance of having a family or their feeling of their essence of what they feel of as being a woman, maybe. And so, yeah, it can be very challenging, I think. And one of the things that a lot of people I speak to who have cancer uh, discuss is that it's not like getting over a, a, an infectious disease where you know that's in the past and you just deal with it. Even if you've had treatment that's hopefully curative, you're always living with that possibility that there might be recurrence. How, how do people deal with that sort of fear? Um, I, I mean, I think, that's a, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's part of our role is not just um, treating people for cancer but helping them live following a diagnosis. Um, we know that you know many of the cancers that I do deal with sadly they do present at a late stage and people are 
likely to recur within you know a few years sadly um but it is about trying to empower people to you know seize the day and live as well as they can during that time and then the other group who are overwhelmingly likely to be cured of their cancers it's about trying to restore their faith in their own body i think and being a bit of a life coach at times about trying to get people back to being them um and i think with a push for doing more patient led follow up that sort of helps because we know from research that um people get very anxious before a follow up appointment because it really resurfaces the idea of their cancer and it might be coming back and they're very worried that you might find something whereas the reality is is that if someone hasn't got symptoms we're very unlikely to find something so um it it's about about empowerment and and letting people know that we are there if there's something they're worried about please come back but otherwise please get on with your lives and you know try and forget about us as much as possible really but it's difficult and, and thinking about cancer prevention or catching something very early Joe, and i know that you 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 have run a, a specialist service in this can you just tell us a little bit about cervical cancer and whether cervical smears are important or not important and just tell us a little bit about that please well, cervical cancer is really exciting. Um, you know, the, the UK is a real world leader in this. Since the late 1980s, we've had a cervical screening programme, which has reduced the number of cervical cancers down by 25%. And there's a lot of evidence that good cervical screening will catch most, but not all cervical cancers, either before they develop into a cancer or at a very early stage. Um, the really exciting thing is, you know, even since I qualified as a doctor, we found out that the human papillomavirus causes the vast majority of cervical cancers and also vulval head and neck cancers and penile cancers. Um, and um, we've developed a vaccine to that. Uh, and recent data has shown that that, you know, we've been very hopeful that that would have a really good effect on reducing the number of cervical cancers. But because it probably takes eight to 15 years to develop that from your primary infection, it, there was always going to be a really lag, long lag phase between um, vaccination and when uh, cancers developed because you have to give the vaccine before you are exposed to HIV as it's only a prophylactic vaccine. And the recent data show that it's having a big decrease in the number of cervical cancers and, you know, doing ourselves out of a job, hopefully. Lovely. HPV, HPV, not HIV, before you're exposed to it. No, Peter. I think it's really exciting, is it, that we can vaccinate against cancer. It's the it's the first time in my professional career I've seen this. And you, you as you say, hopefully this is the way forward, isn't it? But I, I guess it's rare that cancers have that link to a viral infection in the same way. It's it's not uncommon, actually, but they tend to cause um, more of the rarer cancers. So a lot of the DNA viruses actually do cause cancer um, because they, in order, so the virus itself is just a little protein coat with some DNA in it. And what it needs the cell to do is to make its own DNA and to make virus DNA. And normally cells are really very good at really tightly controlling um, DNA production and, and replication because they, they have lots of control factors to stop them suddenly starting to replicate so that you don't get cancers all the time. And what the viruses do is they specifically switch off some of those control mechanisms and the checking mechanisms. So it, it's not that the virus itself causes a cancer, but um, it, it takes the breaks and the checking mechanism on, off the cell, um, which then allows cells eventually to develop 
numerous mutations over years, which can then cause a cancer. So something like EBV, for instance, um, can cause cancer, um, as, as can many of the DNA viruses. So that's Epstein-Barr virus causing Burkitt's lymphoma, which was discovered, which was found in, in Africa. But it doesn't seem to cause the same problems in Britain. So there's something about environment and, and other aspects and maybe nutrition. But that's a great success story about the cervical cancer. And you mentioned in... Uh, when you mentioned the human papillomavirus, the HPV and cervical cancer, you also mentioned vulval cancers. So what's a vulval cancer, Joe? And how, how does it present? And what so, age is it? <laughs> so vulval cancer is a rarer cancer. Um, it affects about 13, 1400 women a year in the UK. The average age of women with vulval cancer is about 70 Although we've seen certainly from data from Germany um, between sort of about 95 and 2015, there's been a 100 percent increase in women in the sort of 50 to 60 age group, probably due to the underlying increase in HPV. So vulval cancer describes uh, cancer that develops on the skin on the outside of the vulva, so not inside the vagina. Most are uh, the vast majority, so 90 percent are squamous cell carcinomas. Um, with a with a few rarer melanomas, uh, uh, basal cell carcinomas, and you get Barthens cancers, which can be of various different cell types. Um, we know um, quite a lot more about the etiology of of the squamous cell carcinoma. Um, so it can it, there's two main ways that you get it. So either it's on the background of HPV infection. Um, and uh, so we precursor lesions uh, called VIN. Um, they can have lots of different appearances and may be symptomatical, may not be. So they may present with a little sort of flat, warty area or an ulcer or a nodule or a little papilloma changing the appearance of the skin. They may be symptomatic, so itch and irritation would be then the main symptoms from those. Uh, and they tend to happen in the younger ones, whereas the older women um, are more likely to get their uh, the um, vulval cancer on the background of um, one of the vulval dermatoses. So the most common being lichen sclerosis, um, which is an autoimmune condition that attacks one of the layers in the skin. Um, and we know that um, that can predispose to cancer in about probably somewhere between 2 and 5% of women with lichen sclerosis. But the problem is, is that lichen sclerosis was thought to be rare, but I think it's just very underdiagnosed, really, rather than necessarily being rare. Um, and the, 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 and um, it has a precursor lesion called differentiated VIN, and that's got a really high chance of progressing to a cancer. You mentioned presentation, and one of the paradoxes I, I find as a GP is that you can have people with really severe symptoms like migraine or terrible stomachache or something that that is isn't anything serious at all and yet people with life-threatening conditions like cancer it can be a very minor symptom to the patient that is a sign of something really bad uh, can you give us a sort of a, a quick overview of, re of red flag symptoms that people should look out for so um, we did a piece of work here um, looking so specifically about uh, people who referred for two-week weight clinic for vulval cancer and so those that just have sort of itch, scratch, sort of irritation type symptoms without a specific lesion to see out of more than 200 people, nobody had a cancer. Um, but those who had a nodule or a lesion or especially if it was painful or bled, 
um, about one in 10, one in eight had a cancer. So if, yeah, if you do notice a, a, an abnormal area on the vulva, especially if it's symptomatic, then that is something to get checked out. Unless, you know, it's obviously a sebaceous inclusion cyst or a typical wart. And that's probably more general, isn't it? That people who have new lesions that don't go away or who have bleeding from almost anywhere, whether it's um, the, the back passage, whether it's uh, in the urine, um, postmenopausal bleeding, it's generally a, a sign that they need to get checked out, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we know that with postmenopausal women, that about one in 10 women with postmenopausal bleeding, even if it's just like one off, you know, that will have either a cancer or a precancerous lesion. So it's really important that they get checked. Um, it's often quite difficult to know whether where the bleeding's coming from. So people with um, visible hematuria, if they're over 55, should also be checked. Um, and you know, it's not uncommon for us to get people referred uh, via urology who've um, had a, a second endometrium seen on scan when they've been referred with hematuria. And the important thing with younger women, uh, so premenopausal women, is you've got uh, you know, new heavy periods or irregular bleeding. Um, then that needs to be checked out too. Um, and uh, ultrasound scan is not a very good screening tool in those young women and they do need endometrial sampling. Uh, but it helps if you look at them too, because we, we have had people who've been referred, you know, who've had an ultrasound scan because they've had heavy periods and it hasn't settled down and they've had telephone triage and it's come back you know, they've come back to their GP three months later and they've got a big lesion on their cervix. And of course, their ultrasound's completely normal and it very much affects which pathway. So it is useful if people are um, uh, examined in general practice, because if they've got something abnormal on the cervix, then we'd see them in colposcopy rather than get them a scan and triage from there. So take home message, follow up the abnormal lumps and bleeding. And we've been using some technical terms, endometrium, which is the lining of the wound, and hematuria, which is blood in the urine. But there's a there's a there's a sort those are sort of both Greek and Latin terms. But what does lesion mean? Because we've been using the word, but what does the actual word lesion mean? Could you just give us a, a nice snappy definition in plain English? Oh, Andrew, that's hard. Um, well, I think it's just if you've got a, a lump, a bump or an ulcer, um, then that's something that should be checked out. Right. So lump or bump or ulcer, something unusual. Uh, that's lesion. Hematuria is blood in the urine. Endometrium is lining of wound. Peter, we've had the Greek and Latin lessons, so we're now back to back to English. <laughs> I'm afraid when uh, doctors get together, we we slip into this medical gobbledygook, don't we? And and don't realise that uh, it, it's uh, not normal language. So we've got somebody. We've given people a bit of advice about when they should re uh, uh, refer themselves to the GP. What sort of things we should worry about? A little bit about um, what causes cancer for somebody who's gone through that process, had the treatment. What support is available to help people who are living with cancer? Um, there's, well, there's been a big push um, over recent years to try and help people sort of live beyond their diagnosis. So coming from Macmillan and, um, and also the NHS, because one in two of us will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in our life. It's something that increasingly people survive um and, and and therefore you know we we have to try and balance helping people live longer and better with with also 
and uh, empowering them to seek help if they need it and know what to look out for um, rather than necessarily inundate ourselves with follow-up appointments because I think the traditional method of you know the 15-minute follow-up appointment with a different junior doctor that you see every time is neither good for picking stuff up nor is it good for dealing with your psychological needs um, there's quite a lot of work that has gone to show that um, compared to that, then a telephone appointment with a clinical nurse specialist is much better at um, dealing with um, how people are coping with things and helping them developing supportive, um, self-supportive mechanisms for themselves. Um, uh, and um, and that actually the traditional follow-up for many cancers is just what we've done traditionally. It's not necessarily any evidence to back it up, and it, but it's really difficult to stop doing that. And we know we know from reviews that I think you have to do something like nearly 650 nearly examinations to pick up an asymptomatic um, endometrial cell womb cancer recurrence because most people will present with symptoms and that by seeing people in clinic routinely what you do is you delay them coming back to you when they've got a problem and we've got data from the UK and Norway that shows that so it is about we provide um, psychological support for people who need it um, providing care for people who have symptoms of ongoing problems from their treatment so we have we're very lucky in Somerset that we have at least Durant who is a consultant radiographer who specializes in late effects of uh, radiation which can leave long-term really damaging problems for people okay on occasions and um and, and we also have counseling very available from the beacon center which can supplement that available in primary care so that's great. So there's support for people's psychology. And we've gone to we've gone from thinking about a diagnosis or thinking about presenting symptoms to to the aftermath. What happens in between? So let's say I've come to you. Well, not, not me personally, because I've got the wrong chromosomes, but let's say I've come along with with symptoms of, of, of a vulval cancer or a cervical cancer, and we'll deal with both if we may. What treatment might I expect? What would I expect to, you know, I'd meet you, Joe, or one of your colleagues, and what would happen next? And what's my pathway over the next few weeks or months? I mean, one of the one of the complex things about gynecological cancer is that we're actually treating lots of different cancers. So the pathways are somewhat different. So, um, and... Uh, they may vary depending on where you live, although, you know, that we're trying to make that more aligned. So if you get referred to us with postmenopausal bleeding, then you would expect to uh, receive an appointment to come for an ultrasound scan. And then on the basis of that um, and how thick the lining of the womb is on scan, it would depend on whether you need to come up to clinic to have a sample taken from the lining of the womb, which can be either done with a little sampler or a very fine little telescope called a hysteroscope. Um, if you've got um, an abnormal smear or an abnormality looking on the seen on the cervix or postcortical bleeding, then you'd be referred to colposcopy, so that we would have a look at the cervix using a speculum and a microscope and putting special dyes on and take biopsies if we need to. And with ovarian, we very much do. Um, it depends on what they've been referred with and what investigations they've had before. So ideally, people should come with a with tumour markers performed and hopefully an ultrasound scan. Um, and uh, and then we would speak to them, find out a bit more about them, arrange a CT scan, more complex imaging if they need that, and then see them with the results and plan what to do next. But through that journey, they're supported by our clinical nurse specialists who make sure that people have their number if they've got any questions or concerns or don't hear about their appointments. 
You've described that very clearly. And I know a lot of patients find not just dealing with the cancer, but having to have the investigations and then the treatment extremely distressing uh, because it's very personal and, and private and, and people find that difficult. Is, is that something that you see? And, and if so, how would you help people to deal with that? I'm really lucky that I have a great team um, and, you know, the the PMB service and the colposcopy service is largely run by a, a group of you know, extremely able nurse specialists who um and every one of that team be it the receptionist or the the admin clerks you know they're all really focused on making the best possible experience for people and we know that everybody coming in is really anxious we've we've been trying to do um some work looking at whether having a sort of a telephone consultation with one of the nurses beforehand to talk them through what's going to happen when they come up for say something like an outpatient hysteroscopy helps and what it shows is that people even if you've given all of that people are still really anxious because you know you would be I mean I know exactly what was going to happen if I had to come to that sort of clinic yeah I'd still be anxious so you know you can only allay people's anxiety so much because some of that anxiety is appropriate you know they're going to have something done that's not the most fun thing that you'll ever have done in your life will be as lovely as we can be but it doesn't take uh, you know, that doesn't take away the fact that, you know, you're going to have your pants off and your knees in the air and none of that is pleasant. But, you know, they can be reassured that the people doing that really care about making that as as nice as it can possibly be and people feel supported as they can possibly be through it. Thank you. That's really helpful to know that we're getting such a good service in Somerset. And it's information is key, but often things are unknown. And so information beforehand helps. But there is something about the connection with the person. And I feel very reassured that you and your colleagues are, are able to give a very personal service. And as you say, to people who are going through loss because... Um, it is a loss of something, whether it's surgery, radiotherapy, or or even just our dignity to be told actually oh, everything's okay. Well, I, 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 it's it's good only to lose your dignity to be reassured. But um, the you mentioned that there are a number of different pathways depending on different cancers, and so um, presumably that includes radiotherapy and chemotherapy and surgery, of course, because you're a surgeon. So what what's, what sort of operations might you might you be involved with it over a month or so? Oh gosh, um, well, quite quite a lot of the cancers, so ovarian or endometrial cancer, often requires hysterectomy and removing tubes and ovaries. So um, obviously, vulval cancer involves removing skin on the vulva. Sometimes that um, requires um, a trip down to Exeter to work with my colleagues in plastic surgery down there if we need to transpose a piece of skin to cover a gap but normally it doesn't and that's why it's good if people present early because it really limits what we can do which is great um, and we can also now do what's called sentinel lymph nodes so um, that if you have a small lesion on the vulva you can inject a radioactive dye around the node around the the, the actual little cancer um, you can find which node it first drains to remove that node look at it really carefully under the microscope for microscopic deposits and if they're free then you don't have to have all of the nodes removed in your groins which was the traditional treatment um, so with um, cervical cancer um, either that if it's very early stage that just may involve in outpatients having a piece of your cervix removed with a little hot wire loop 
and cauterize something we do under local anesthetic. Um, if it's more advanced than that, then that may need a what's called a radical hysterectomy. So that involves removing not just the womb and cervix, but also the tissues surrounding um, the cervix and the top of the vagina, which involves having to dissect out the ureters, which inconveniently runs through that space, um, and also removing the lymph nodes within the pelvis to see whether they're involved or not. And ovarian cancer surgery has changed quite a lot, even since I've qualified, um, that, you know, we now aim to re remove as much of the cancer as possible, aiming to leave no visible tumour behind at the end of surgery. So that may involve um, multidisciplinary working with um, the, the colorectal team as well and removal of pieces of bowel, omentum, uh, stripping off peritoneum. So, um, and we're, you know, one of the real joys of working here is that we've got great working relationships with our colleagues in vascular, colorectal and urology um, and, and have real multidisciplinary surgery, which is a delight, actually. That's great to hear you're part of a great team. And I suppose I'm also hearing that things caught earlier, you know, for instance, a vulva one caught early, it's much easier to deal with from the point of view of your extensive surgery. What would you say about ovarian cancer? Because is that an easy one that people can, can notice early or, or what should we look out for as, as people in society? The problem we have with ovarian cancer, and I'm doing little air quotation marks, is because the more we know about it, the more we know that it probably um, arises from the fimbrial ends of the fallopian tubes. Um, and so they're the little bit that catches the egg as it is released from the ovary. So they're immediately available to the abdominal cavity. And you can have a really tiny microscopic, what we call stick lesion, serous tubal intraepithelial carcinoma. And so the cells don't actually have to learn how to invade and spread. They can just drop off, float around in the small amount of fluid we all have inside our tummy, um, stick and then grow. And so even if you have a microscopic primary uh, and we take your tubes out and we get you know, you can have had disease spread at that stage. So we don't really have either a screening test um, or a, a good diagnostic test at an early stage because it just doesn't present. So hopefully it's something that we may be able to do with blood tests, looking for tumour DNA or tumour cells in the blood that are shed. But whether that can be at an earlier stage than it just dropping off and floating around, I don't know. But a lot of work's gone into that. And sadly, we haven't got a good screening test for ovarian cancer as yet. So just I know Peter wants to look at the psychological aspects, but just to say the 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 things we might actually present with our bloating. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, so swelling. So swelling of your tummy, odd pain, that sort of thing, sort of feeling very full very quickly after eating those sort of things. So you've given us a very clear idea of some of the ways that cancer can present a clear idea that people will be treated sens sensitively and with respect by the team, and a clear idea of the progress that's being made in terms of cancer treatments. But in spite of all this, as you said earlier yourself, it's quite natural that people undergoing this treatment and living with cancer are going to be anxious and, and perhaps depressed sometimes. So I wonder if we can just go back to the, the way that we can help people. And of course, I'd throw in that if people are anxious because of cancer, they can be helped in exactly the same way as people who are anxious for any other reason. So talking therapies, mind line, all the things that we've talked about on previous podcasts apply to people with cancer, don't they? Andrew, do you want to add in other ways that people can be helped? 
Uh, I'll mention the mine line number, which is 01823276892, 24 hours a day. Um, so um, anything to help us feel calmer generally. So relaxing our breathing down, taking our breathing down so that we breathe slowly, rhythmically and regularly puts us on parasympathetic. Um, Peter, you know that I'm a, a, a amongst complementary approaches. I'm, I, I, know that I, I know of a number of my patients over the years and other people who've been helped by tools like Rescue Remedy. They not, are not treatments for any medical any medical condition but they may help people feel calmer and less anxious and uh, there are a number of other ways that people can can accept or can uh, engender inner calm which is so important but I think Joe wanted to bring something in at that point yeah I mean we're really lucky that there are um, a number of really good Ghani charities so Joe's Trust, uh, Eva Peel um, uh, there's uh, Peaches it's a wound cancer charity that's recently been formed and they all have um, and they all have really good sort of peer support networks as part of them. And also some of them have sort of CNS contacts as well and advice. So, you know, the, I've had a number of patients who've really found those communities of people with similar diseases to them really helpful. Um, and, we, you know, we will direct people in those in those places as well. That's really helpful because there's something in life that if we feel alone, it's much easier to be more frightened. Whereas if we feel supported by colleagues, by specialists, by clinical nurse specialists, by or by a group who've understood the journey and have our fellow travellers on the same journey, we can feel feel supported. And that's where those charities can be so helpful, I would imagine. Joe, we're moving towards the end. What would be your take-home messages that you'd like to share with us um, before we before we come to the end? My take-home messages are that um uh, if you if you've got an itchy vulva, please do not assume that it is just thrush. Um, you know we need to be recognising lichen sclerosis more because you can transform someone's life. And the number of women that I see who've had really quite distressing symptoms for two or three years before they've got a diagnosis or even seen somebody is really sad. Um, also, it's really important that you examine people. I know you know we're. It, you know, we we also are, you know, moving, you know, we had telephone follow up and all sorts of stuff. But if someone has got abnormal symptoms, then they need to be seen. And also that the, the third thing is that an ultrasound scan does not exclude, does not exclude a cervical cancer, nor an endometrial cancer in a premenopausal woman. So don't be falsely reassured. You know, it's an indication for a referral. Maybe not through two-week wait. It may be more appropriate for them to go urgent gynae if they're premenopausal and have irregular bleeding. But uh, you know it's important to examine people make sure they don't have something obvious on their cervix because otherwise that's a different pathway and there's lo lots of great information on the nhs.uk website about all sorts of health conditions including gynecological symptoms and, and cancers joe it's been a delight to have you along today thank you so much for helping us um, my pleasure keep up the great work in somerset and thank you very much indeed thank you very much Thank you, Peter and Andrew. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.